This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I said, shoot the 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked through that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. If you're out there and live a past period, you can hear and just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during the next execution, it had an impression on them that maybe it was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They would let me out until I get back to stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get back to them. That was one of the one of the problems we ran into. You had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd hatched a plan in there to... to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out welcome ladies and gentlemen back to behind gray walls a podcast about the old idaho state penitentiary and the men and women who are incarcerated here my name is anthony i'm talking to sky hi it's me sky how's it going it's good how about you oh not too bad happy to be back yeah happy to be back on the podcast and telling mm-hmm. stories and this has been a pretty interesting season to research and write. <laughs> it has been, yes. <laughs> so the release of today's episode actually correlates uh, March 21st, 2022, with the first 11 prisoners arriving at the Territorial Prison in Boise on that same date, 150 years ago in 1872. This season, we're going to be taking a look at the very first men to live and work at the site. And we will also be covering the rich history of mining in the territory, Idaho's oldest industry. This year also marks the 150-year anniversary of the General Mining Law of 1872, which is the focus for our agency, the Idaho State Historical Society, throughout the year. We have special guests lined up to discuss the impact mining has had and the importance of the General Mining Law in establishing the West. It would be remiss not to acknowledge the importance of Native American tribal groups throughout the region. We have briefly mentioned this in previous episodes and hope to have future guests from the tribes on the show to tell their history. This series will focus on the development of the Idaho Territory driven by white settlers' quest for fortune. In this episode, we will look at the early days of law and order and the construction of the Idaho Territorial Prison in Boise. And our sources include the Idaho Daily Statesman from the news bank provided by the Boise Public Library, Library of Congress Chronicling America, Newspapers.com, Inmate Files from the Idaho State Archives, Microfilm Newspapers from the Idaho State Archives, Thomas Donaldson's memoir, Idaho of Yesterday, published posthumously in 1941, and Idaho State Historical Society reference series articles on the creation of the Territory of Idaho, Fort Boise, Territorial Government in Idaho, 1863-1869, Idaho Territorial Administration, 1869-1876, Idaho Territorial Government, and the Idaho Territorial Prison. The ISHS reference series has been instrumental to creating this season. So if you want more details about what we talk about, I think we've cited um, well over half of the ones that are available, especially in the mining and, and territorial sections. So please go check that out if you are interested. Absolutely. Like many territories in the West, Idaho's borders fluctuated as states joined the Union. Idaho was a hazardous stretch along the Oregon Trail. From 1848 to 1853, what we now know as Idaho was part of the vast Oregon Territory. In 1853, it was divided between the Washington and Oregon Territories throughout the decade. 
On February 14, 1859, Oregon's borders were defined as it entered the United States as the 33rd state in the Union. Idaho was then reabsorbed into the Washington Territory. The region was not expected to be settled by white settlers outside of fur trappers and mountain men for another 50 years, but that changed on September 30, 1860. Gold was discovered on the Clearwater River by a man named Elias Davidson Pierce and his team. Pierce was considered a bit of a man of mystery, according to newspaper articles about him. University of Idaho historian Cornelius Brosnan looked into Elias Pierce's background in the 1920s and found that Elias was born in the eastern United States and flocked to California in search of gold after the 1849 gold rush. Failing to turn up anything, he headed north to British Columbia before heading to the Washington Territory and making the Clearwater River discovery. He supposedly died in Penville, Indiana in 1897. Regardless, his team's discovery ushered in a mining rush as nearly 10,000 miners flocked to the area within a year. A town, aptly named Pierce, was established and became the county seat of Clearwater County. Today, the oldest federal building in the state, the Pierce Courthouse, constructed in 1862, still stands in Pierce and is maintained by the Idaho State Historical Society. Today, staff and volunteers that work at the J. Howard Bradbury Memorial Logging Museum operate the historic courthouse. You can learn about the history of logging and request a visit to the courthouse with them. For a geography reference, Pierce is east of Lewiston and Orofino and almost halfway between Lewiston, Idaho and Missoula, Montana. Orofino was established next. The name comes from two Spanish words, oro and fino, for fine gold. Today, State Hospital North and the Idaho Department of Corrections have institutions in Orofino. Lewiston was developed, and other industries like lumber moved into the region to construct homes and supply posts and sluice boxes for miners. Shortly after Pierce's discovery of gold in 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected the 16th president of the United States. He took office in March 1861. While miners were settling in the territories in the West, the American Civil War was ramping up and would span for four bloody years in the East from April 12, 1861 to May 9, 1865. A major cause of the war was the Republican Party's aim to prevent slavery from spreading to the territories in the West. The region would remain a part of the Washington Territory until the Idaho Territory was established by President Lincoln on March 3, 1863. With the establishment of a territory came government, legislation, laws, and punishment. Territorial legislation led to the creation of jails in each county. House Bill No. 45 from January 1864 passed through the House of Representatives, Council, and was signed into law by Acting Governor William Daniels. The bill required each county to build and maintain a jail at their own expense with regular inspections from county commissioners. The sheriff of each county oversaw the jail and was responsible for providing adequate food, shelter, and medical assistance at a reasonable salary, quote, not exceeding $2 per day, end quote. One or more jailers could be hired to fill in at the jail while the sheriff served other duties, and the jailer was required to provide their county commissioners with a list of all the men who were incarcerated, along with their crime and sentence, five days before district court. Failure to provide this list resulted in a fine between 20 and $50. United States federal prisoners could be housed in a territorial county jail for a charge of $5 per month from the federal government to hold them. Any prisoner unable to pay fines attached to their sentence could serve their time at a rate of $2 per day until their debt was paid. The sheriff could write the territorial governor to have a prisoner move to another county jail or be pardoned entirely at the cost of the county. Other bills passed by the legislature defined crimes such as fraudulent and malicious mischief, which had a wide umbrella of punishable actions. Poisoning domestic animals like cattle led to a one- to three-year sentence in prison and a fine of up to $500. Killing a horse, ox, or any other domesticated animal could lead to a six-month jail sentence and $500 fine. 
breaking down a person's door, window, fence, gate, railing, fruit, or shade tree, could be fined up to $250 and spend six months in the county jail. This would be the foundation authorities in the region made to tame the territory. Log jail houses were built in Lewiston and Idaho City. The Boise County Jail in Idaho City was built in May 1864. In October of that year, the grand jury toured it and reported that it was, quote, strong and substantial and kept clean and neat. The jailers rendered us every assistance, and the prisoners themselves have no cause for complaint. We regret, however, that there are so large a number of prisoners in confinement, but find them in good health and well cared for, end quote. The jury submitted 12 indictments, including three for murder. In March 1865, an act to establish a territorial prison commission was created to make the Boise County Jail in Idaho City and the Nez Perce County Jail territorial prisons. During the July term of court in 1865, the 20 felony indictments were handed down, including six first-degree murders, one insult with intent to murder, two arsons, six grand larcenies, two highway robberies, one assault with intent to do great bodily harm, one for exhibiting a deadly weapon, and one for passing counterfeit gold dust. While inspecting the jail in Idaho City, the foreman of the grand jury noted that the prisoners were carefully guarded and their health was good, but, quote, the ventilation of the building is extremely defective. The enclosure surrounding the same is not of sufficient extent to admit of the requisite exercise of persons under confinement, end quote. You know, I found just all of these levels of checks and balances to make sure that prisoners were adequately taken care of. I, I was kind of surprised by that and all the regulation by that in these early days. A lack of ventilation and exercise weren't the only issues for early prisoners. Vigilante committees sprung up in towns when a sense of law and order wasn't fulfilled within a community. On August 27, 1865, quote, The first armed and organized attempts to forcibly trample upon the laws and to substitute in the place of peace and order the lawless unthinking of brutality of a mob kindling the unquenchable flames of domestic strife, hatred, and revenge, and imperiling every material interest for which men have made this territory their homes, end quote. Newspaper men equated this vigilante committee to a civil war within the territory. The reason was a man named Ferdinand Patterson. He was a gambler and an educated Southern Democrat Confederate sympathizer from Texas with a reportedly terrible temper and a charismatic nature. Patterson arrived in Idaho City in March 1865, and within a week of his arrival, a notice appeared in the Idaho World in Idaho City cautioning readers to, quote, Beware, all men are warned against the purchase from any person of the interest held by R.W. Ralston in the Last Chance Bar and Gray Rock Bar mining claims on Moores Creek below Idaho City and in the Gray Back Bar Ditch, as the same has been attached, and any conveyance to Ferd Patterson or any other person is hereby denounced as fraudulent as against the undersigned creditors of said Ralston, end quote. Former U.S. Marshal, tax collector, and Boise County Sheriff Sumner Pinkham crossed paths with Ferdinand and knew of his past. Sumner Pinkham was the first U.S. Marshal of Boise County. Unlike Ferdinand, Sumner was an abolitionist from Maine who moved west to the California gold fields before making his way to the Idaho Territory to mine in the 1860s. Before coming to Idaho, Ferdinand had committed a murder of a coastal steamer ship captain on its way up to Portland from San Francisco. Captain Staples called Ferdinand a traitor for his Confederate sympathies. Ferdinand killed the captain and after being arrested was found not guilty by the jury as he was acting in self-defense. Ferdinand had been traveling with a woman known for her beautiful long blonde hair. When he was released after his trial, he found her living with a new man. He proceeded to hack her hair off with a bowie knife. The Albany Journal called Fred, quote, as game a man as ever trod the earth. 
the bravest act of his life was scalping a woman of the town in Portland, end quote. Ferd had a reputation, and before he stepped foot in the Idaho Territory, the Idaho Tri-Weekly Statesman printed, quote, Ferd Patterson, held in bail in the sum of $500 for scalping a woman in Portland, deposited the greenbacks, and left for some other city where there is no penitentiary, end quote. His reputation soured in most places he went, as miners gambled away and lost their money to him. Sumner Pinkham had many run-ins with Ferdinand, but he lost his appointment as U.S. Marshal. Sumner was enjoying the hot springs near Idaho City. Like today, it was a spa and saloon where people could go to rest, relax, and soak. On July 22, 1865, Sumner finished a soak when Ferdinand Patterson arrived at the spa. Some reports said they ignored each other as they crossed paths, though some foul language may have been exchanged. One article noted that a visitor was heard singing, Hang Jeff Davis on a Sour Apple Tree, to the tune of John Brown's body. Sumner was waiting on the front porch for a ride back into Idaho City when Ferdinand walked to the patio and fired two shots into him. One newspaper described Sumner as a, quote, fearless, outspoken union man and abolitionist, brave as a lion. He gave Ruffian Patterson a fight after being twice wounded, but the odds were too heavy and poor Pinkham fell shot through the heart, end quote. One report noted that Ferdinand said, quote, abolition son of a bitch, end quote, before mounting a horse and running off. He was arrested soon after, and the townspeople took up arms. Fortunately, another civil war was prevented as a posse surrounded the Boise County Jail and prevented the planned necktie party the vigilantes planned for Ferdinand Patterson. Patterson was tried for the murder of Sumner Pinkham and was not convicted. He was set free. On February 15, 1866, Ferdinand was sitting in a barber chair in Walla Walla, Washington, when a man named Michael Donahue entered the shop and opened fire, killing him. There were full-scale escapes from the territorial prison in Idaho City. One occurred in 1867. There were four men serving time that spring named Hiram Kurtz, Michael Dunn, Victor Boley, and Michael Deal. Hiram Kurtz was from Iowa and serving life for killing a Chinese man in Idaho City. He originally was sentenced to hang, but had the sentence commuted to life. Michael Dunn was an Irishman serving 20 years for killing Thomas McKay, the two men had a shooting affray in the summer of 1865 when McKay fired his weapon at Dunn and the ball glanced off of Dunn's forehead. He survived, but vowed to kill McKay. Michael Dunn heard McKay was back in Idaho City in March 1866 and spotted him in the street and fired at him six times, three bullets striking McKay and killing him in the middle of the town in front of many witnesses. Victor Boley was sentenced to 20 years after stabbing Jacob Jordan in the groin during an argument at a faro table in Boise that led to his death. Michael Deal was serving two years for stealing horses in Owyhee County in 1865 and was looking at only a month or two before his release. On April 3, 1867, these four men hatched a plan. There were two jailers, but one was in town on business. The other, Robert Griffith, was on guard. Michael Dunn asked to be released into the prison yard around 10 a.m., and Griffith agreed and entered the cell and shackled the four men. He turned to unlock the door into the yard when he was grabbed from behind and tackled to the ground. The men jumped on him and pulled his pistol and knife from him, then locked him in a cell. Instead of fleeing the jail right away, they waited and demanded the Chinese man who was hired as a cook in the jail to prepare them a nice meal. He butchered some chickens, and the escapees found some of Robert Griffith's liquor to wash it down. They ate and waited for the other guard, Joseph Rowe, to return. 
Finally, around noon, they spotted him crossing a footbridge near Buena Vista Bar, carrying a chicken under one arm and a book under the other. Michael Deal, who had been a trustee and nearing his release, opened the outer prison gate for Joseph Rowe, who walked in suspecting nothing. Immediately, he was attacked, and Griffith's pistol was leveled at his chest. Hiram Kurtz lunged at Griffiths with the knife, but Michael Dunn and Michael Deal stopped him and disarmed him as the knife cut through the clothing of the guard's right arm. They locked the two guards up together in a cell, along with the Chinese cook. The men looted the prison of all valuables, including a, quote, Henry rifle, two revolvers, several knives, and an abundant supply of food, end quote. In the early evening, a local man named Gilmore visited with a bucket of water for the men. Trustee Michael Deal took it, as usual, leaving Gilmore without any inkling of what was going on inside the prison. Sometime between nine and midnight, the four prisoners left the jail. It took some convincing by Michael Dunn to prevent Bowley and Kurtz from burning down the jail with the jailers still locked up inside. Early the next morning, as townsfolk were waking up, the Chinese cook broke up some chunks of wood that were in his cell, and he and the jailers howled and banged away on the cells to get the attention of the men in the cabin below the Buena Vista bar. They were discovered and relieved from their cells around eight in the morning. A reward for $500 for the apprehension was posted, and $200 for each of them if they were captured outside of Boise County. Nearly three weeks later, Sheriff Kutcher was tipped off that the escapees headed west towards Boise. They stopped off at Samson's Sawmill, about halfway between Idaho City and Boise, and were hiding out in an unoccupied cabin. Sheriff Kutcher and guard Joseph Rowe mounted horses and started a journey on horseback that would span them over 100 miles that day. They made it to Boise and swapped out fresh horses, and with the help of Boise Sheriff Jack Wyatt, spread the word up and down the Boise River to keep an eye out for the escapees. They were told that about five miles below Boise, the men attempted to cross in a raft, but it sank along with most of their provisions. They continued traveling with their pistols and made it further down the river, hiding along the banks and amongst the willows and reeds as they moved. A couple of men who were on the lookout for Native Americans spotted them. They worked with ferrymen and hatched a plan to cross the river, acting as if they were looking for cattle. They landed the ferry amongst the willows and asked the four escapees for help. Victor Bowley and Hiram Kurtz agreed, boarding the ferry, but Michael Dunn and Michael Deal decided to remain on the far side of the river. Victor and Hiram were taken to the ferry house where they were held as the sheriff was alerted. They had fallen into a trap. Before the sheriff could arrive, Hiram Kurtz escaped the ferry house. Sheriff Kutcher left guard row at the ferry house to watch over Bowley, sent Sheriff Wyatt on a hunt for Hiram, and then started across the river to track down the other two men. Kurtz was captured later that night and lodged in the jailhouse in Boise, along with Victor Bowley. The Michaels had made it further along the river and succeeded in stealing a horse that they traded off in riding. The owner gathered up a few friends and followed the tracks of his horse. After speaking to different ferrymen along the river, they finally discovered the tracks that led to a canyon. They called for the men to come out, but Dunn and Deal refused. One of the men dismounted his horse, rifle in hand, and called for them to come out from behind some rocks. Michael Deal started running, and Michael Dunn stood up and aimed his gun and dared his pursuer to shoot. He did. Quote, The rifle ball pierced Dunn's forehead in the very center, and he staggered back, but quickly recovering with most desperate energy and iron nerve, he again raised his pistol for a shot at Flippin. At that moment, another of the party shot into his side the contents of a double-barreled shotgun loaded with buckshot. The bold, dauntless, desperate man fell and life sped almost instantly. As it was too dark by this time to make further search for Deal, and it was known that he was without weapons, having dropped his knife in the chase, without blankets or food, and in a region where he must soon surrender, starve, or be killed by Indians, the party returned to the ferry." End quote. 
Victor Boley and Hiram Kurtz were returned to the prison in Idaho City. Michael Deal, who had served nearly his whole two-year sentence for stealing a horse and his apparent reluctant involvement with the other men, was not mentioned again after the escape. In April 1869, Hiram Kurtz, who killed the Chinese man in Idaho City, quote, was shot dead near Ogden by some Mormons he had tried to rob, end quote. During the summer of 1869, a man named G.W. Grayson left his home in Silver City to visit Boise. He left behind some raw ore under his home. When he returned, the ore was missing. A few days later, the sack of stolen rock was discovered in a nearby tunnel along with a mortar, pestle, and pan. Mr. Grayson recognized the rock. They left the supplies in the tunnel and waited nearby. The next morning, a local African-American man named James Freeman entered the tunnel and left with the items. He was arrested and held on a $1,000 bond to answer for the charge of taking the ore, noted as being worth between three dollars and $400. He was sentenced to five years in the Idaho Territorial Prison. He wrote a poem that was published in the Owyhee Semi-Weekly Tidal Wave in Silver City before he was transferred to Idaho City. A Prisoner's Lament. James Freeman is my name. In 1863, in search of wealth and fame, I chanced to come to Owyhee. At last I've struck a five years job, with casings well developed. If you should fail to see the knob, it's recorded by R.E. Halleck. As I walked out one morning fair to view the fields Elysian, and take a breath of morning air, I spied a chap called Grayson. He said, young man, I found you out with that that's not your own, and I'll reward your industry and furnish you a home. Moses Lyon and Van Slyke are two warm friends of mine, stuck closer than a brother Ike, till I was close confined. I think those gentlemen in luck, in splendid luck, I think, to earn a chip or two to buck and something left to drink. At length to prison I was brought, bowed down with rattling chains. The idle crowd looked on, nor thought how terrible my pains. Now in this lonely cell I lie, with none to pity me, the thought that brings teardrops to my eye, the penitentiary. I will grow old in five long years. Oh, that I were younger. My poor old mother, all my fears that she will die with hunger. While Mr. Grayson's lofty halls are furnished all to fashion, oh, it is hard to bat, tis true, that he has no compassion. Compassion, I know, the judge appears, his heart is turned to bone, to sentence me for five long years for stealing ore, a stone. If e'er I gain sweet liberty, of solemn vow I take, to cross Atlantic and Pacific, for Owyhean's sake. The Idaho World in Idaho City noted that he was brought to the prison on July 20th, 1869, and quote, Mr. Freeman is, paradoxically speaking, not a free man any longer, end quote. <laughs> no offense to him, but that wasn't the best poem ever. No, no. The newspaper in Idaho City kind of made fun of the Owyhee's tidal wave and said that uh, he was the proper poet for such a newspaper. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So the back and forth between newspapers is so fascinating in this time period. Right. He was African-American, right? He was, yeah. I'm surprised they didn't say more about that, to be honest. You know, I that's actually what I was kind of looking for. And, right. you know, the Civil War is still pretty fresh at this point, And there's still a lot of debate and discussion on different races, different classes um, amongst all right. of these articles that, you know, that we're finding that are mostly focused on on crime and order. But different newspapers and different citizens had different thoughts. And, and we had the whole mm -hmm. gamut. Yeah, you know, Idaho City right. was kind of more of a Democrat-leaning one, more where, like, Boise is more of a Republican-leaning city. Mm -hmm. So right. so many interesting interpretations that we see in these early histories. Mm -hmm. So 
1867, the United States government actually appropriated $40,000 each for penitentiaries to be built in Idaho, Colorado, and Montana. In 1868, a prison committee was established to develop the new prison. Right away, the debate on who should pay for the institution filled the newspapers. The Idaho statesman noted on December 31st of that year, quote, shall the territorial treasury be fleeced to the tune of $30,000 during the next two years for the support of the prisoners, or will the territory accept the appropriation of $40,000 from the government and place as soon as possible the prisoners in a position to support themselves, which can easily be done by placing them under contract to getting out rock for a permanent territorial prison, end quote. So this idea of hard labor for the benefit of the state was within the prison's focus right from the very beginning. Days later, in 1869, the committee selected the site. But to their shock and dismay, when they returned to the area, a local citizen had actually built a temporary house on it, staking their claim. Quote, we hardly thought it possible that a party resided in our midst so unprincipled as to attempt to speculate on a prison site to the detriment of not only the city, but the whole territory, end quote. Boise citizens were in an uproar. Governor Ballard filed a document into the land office claiming the 60-acre selection despite the citizens' claim. And within the month, by February, a Mr. Benedict came forward and filed a deed of trust to Governor Ballard without cost to the territory, quote, although he had already expended considerable money and labor on the claim, end quote. On February 9th, 1869, he wrote a letter that was published in the Statesman where he claimed he filed for the land on December 28th when another man threatened to file the claim before him. He insisted he didn't intend to file it to sell it to the government, but it was just good land, and he wanted it. He also insisted that no member of the committee approached him. With the land settled, the committee moved on to the next step, finding contractors and workmen. Thomas Donaldson was appointed superintendent of construction on August 12, 1869 for $1,000. We'll talk more about him in a moment. Charles May was handed the contract for its construction a month later on October 16, 1869. Two other builders had made bids, including Roby and Rossi for $38,400 and Charles L. Osner for $37,500. Charles May put the lowest bid in at $34,745. The construction project would nearly bankrupt him when he began purchasing cement, which was much more expensive than anticipated. According to Thomas Donaldson, cement in Idaho is worth about $26 a barrel, and labor was also high-priced. Charles May published advertisements offering up 500 barrels of lime throughout the summer. L.B. Munson bid $4,605 for carpentry work, and George Twitchell bid $2,495 to install the plumbing. The construction crew was assembled. Construction of the prison began in 1870. Charles May, the contractor, invited the public to a groundbreaking ceremony on April 2nd, 1870. The Idaho statesman marked the invitation with the note, quote, A general attendance of every age and sex is requested in order that all may view the commencement of an edifice that may someday be their home, and even the wisest know not how soon, end quote. On June 27, 1870, the first stone was laid, and soon after, Thomas Donaldson requested contributions from local citizens for a time capsule. Ironically, the cornerstone containing the lead time capsule was laid as part of Boise's Independence Day celebration that year. 
It remained untouched until July 17, 1970. Unsure as to which building was the territorial prison, authorities had to use a metal detector to find and remove the lead box containing one of Idaho's most valuable caches of territorial history. Superintendent Thomas Donaldson was appointed by Jacob D. Cox, Secretary of the Interior, on August 12, 1869. Thomas was new to the Idaho Territory and had been working as a register in the land office in Boise for a few short months. According to most accounts, he was really charismatic, and many articles appeared in the newspapers about him. He was described as a carpetbagger, a term Southerners used to describe opportunistic Northerners who came to the South after the Civil War and who were thought to be exploiting the locals. In one speech, quote, with a voice that could be heard all over Boise City, end quote, Thomas admitted to the crowd that he was a carpetbagger and had, quote, carried a carpetbag strapped between his shoulders down south during the late unpleasantness, end quote, but insisted that he came to Idaho, quote, not to gobble up appropriations and carry them off, but to stay here and live here to help us revise some of our laws that are a reproach to the world, to help to do all that is needed to be done to make the territory respectable, prosperous, and happy, end quote. One of the bystanders asked him to compare Irishmen and Chinamen, and he shouted that, quote, an Irishman wasn't as good as a Chinaman unless he behaved himself, end quote. (laughs) Not great. (laughs) Um, It was less than a month after making this splash amongst the local authorities that Thomas was handed the contract to construct the prison. According to the newspaper, days after the appointment, quote, Donaldson did not expect the appointment, nor in fact had any idea that his name would be used in that connection. (laughs) But now that the duty of commencing the work devolves upon him, he proposes to lose no time nor spare any energy in pushing it forward as speedily as possible. The short acquaintance we have had with him induces the belief that he will keep the promise and that the superintendency for the erection of the penitentiary has fallen into good hands, end quote. It would take a whole episode to cover this man's life and contributions to the United States and our history, so we will just leave it there for now. Fortunately, he understood the importance of documenting his experiences. He wrote several books throughout his life, including a memoir before his death in the 1890s about his time in territorial Idaho called Idaho of Yesterday. His son published it posthumously in 1941 with Caxton Printers in Caldwell. In the preface, Thomas begins the book with the line, quote, This book is not a history. It contains too much truth. It holds my personal observations of Idaho and pioneers, and also much that was told me by reliable people, end quote. He continues by saying that there was little written about early history of the Idaho Territory, but he captures the feeling and the relationship amongst the citizens of the Territory in great detail. He only briefly mentioned the Territorial Prison Construction Project that he led in a couple of sections. In a chapter about Idaho's population makeup, he noted that the men constructing the penitentiary were paid from 4 to $6 a day, half as much as the workmen who constructed Fort Boise in 1863, who were paid $8 a day in gold. In one of his many humorous notes, he said, quote, Labor was very high-priced, and the laborers, skilled mechanics, needed more watching than the men who were ultimately to occupy the penitentiary. I obtained considerable amusement, and some annoyance, by spying on them from afar. My wife and I frequently rode out to the building, and I carried a pair of field glasses in the buggy. From a distance, I could see the men gracefully reclining upon the walls, but when the dust from our tracks caught their eye, the walls were suddenly a scene of great activity, end quote. <laughs> Journalists and the statesmen regularly documented the progress of construction throughout 1870. On September 1st, 1870, Superintendent Donaldson drove local photographer H.E. Leslie to the prison to capture a photo of the workmen as they completed the work on the walls. It is the only photo in our collection of the territorial prison under construction and depicts three stories of wooden scaffolding and about ten workmen leaning up against the newly completed wall. 
A small carriage drawn by two horses is nearby, and at the bottom of the photo is a note that appears to say, quote, Brady has not yet opened a gallery in this place, end quote. This is probably a note to the famous photographer Matthew Brady, known for his Civil War photography. If you want to catch a glimpse of the devastation of the Civil War, look up Matthew Brady's series The Dead of Antietam. If you have a $5 bill in your pocket, Lincoln is based off the portrait Matthew Brady took of Lincoln on February 9, 1864. He was close friends with American poet and essayist Walt Whitman, who appeared as a subject in many photographs. In 1889, while speaking with his biographer, Walt Whitman said, quote, Brady had galleries in Washington. His headquarters were in New York. We had many talks together. The point was how much better it would often be, rather than having a lot of contradictory records by witnesses of historians, if we could have three or four or half a dozen portraits, very accurate, of the men. That would be history, the best history, a history from which there could be no appeal, end quote. This quote comes from Horace Traubel's collection of writings for the book With Walt Whitman in Camden. Interestingly, though, another man was a close friend and wrote a well-renowned biography of Walt Whitman in 1896 titled Walt Whitman, The Man. That was Thomas Donaldson. After the photo, the workmen gathered to celebrate over beefsteak, coffee, and a lager beer. As the superintendent mounted his carriage to return to town, Judge John McBride, construction superintendent of the assay office in Boise, produced a large gold brick. He presented it to Donaldson as a payment in gratitude for his work. The brick, worth $500, was received with a modest response from Donaldson, quote, It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is equally orthodox that he giveth to the poor, tendeth to the Lord, and I am as poor, boys, as any man in Idaho. I can only say I thank you and wish you all long lives, good wives, and a prosperity that will make you independent and happy to the end of your life, end quote. And interestingly, Thomas Donaldson would also give Judge John McBride a gold pocket watch upon the completion of the assay office as a return gift. Hmm. The cell house remained vacant after cells were installed in early 1871 until the first 11 men arrived the following year. We will get to all of their stories later in the season. In the first week of February 1872, Sheriff McClintock shook down the prison in Idaho City. The date to move the prisoners to Boise was coming, and they wanted it to be without controversy, and all 11 men serving time would make the journey without issue. As Sheriff McClintock searched, he found that two men had sawed through the rivets of their manacles, and they had squared away two case knives and a flat piece of steel sharpened into a saw. The sheriff reshackled the men and reminded them, quote, any attempt by them to escape at this season of the year would be the height of folly, for should they get out, they couldn't leave the roads on account of the snow, and the recapture would be a certainty, end quote. On February 16, 1872, at around 9 p.m., one of the jailers named McCarty was watching over the prison alone. The other jailer, Tom Smith, was in town on an errand. McCarty called for the trusty prisoner to lock up the rest of the prisoners. He proceeded to lock up seven men in one cell, but not lock the door. The men waited for an opportunity and dashed out of the cell into the jailer. One of the prisoners, Dennis Crowley, tried to stop them, but was beaten over the head while the jailer was thrown down and disarmed. Dennis Crowley and the jailer were locked in a cell, and the men waited for Tom Smith to return. When he arrived, the men grabbed him, disarmed him, and locked him up. The men then gathered blankets and food. Dennis Crowley refused to leave, as well as a man named Michael Donahue, both of whom we'll be covering in a future episode. The six men escaped into the freezing night, all but one Chinese prisoner able to remove their shackles. He was seen shortly after entering the town, and an alarm went off. The hope for a 10-hour head start was shortened to two as Sheriff McClintock rushed to the jail to free his men and gathered a posse to recapture the escapees. 
Within days, all of the men were recaptured. A mailman approaching Idaho City saw two men ducking behind trees as he approached and quickly turned around to find more authorities to arrest them. One man was found in a haystack and when he was discovered, jumped into a creek to escape downstream, but was captured soon after with badly frozen feet. The last man was recaptured about seven miles below town after flashing a six-shooter. Quote, a few shots from a Henry rifle, one ball inflicting a slight flesh wound, brought him to terms, and he was brought back to the prison. We don't blame prisoners for escaping if they get a chance. Anybody sentenced to the penitentiary would do the same. But it was certainly a foolhardy undertaking to try to get away at this season of the year. End quote. In an article in the Idaho Statesman, it was noted that the men attempted escape because escaping from the new Boise Territorial Prison would be much more difficult. Governor Bennett signed a contract with the United States Marshal Joseph Pinkham to hand over territorial prisoners into his protection. The contract included the requirement for the territory to pay the United States $7 per week to cover board, clothing, and medical attention for each prisoner, and no other expenses. The fee would be paid monthly. Marshal Pinkham planned to develop a system of work for the men when they arrived in Boise. Finally, on March 21, 1872, the 11 prisoners were shackled and transferred from Idaho City to Boise in T.V. Matthews stage line under guard of Sheriff McClintock and three or four armed guards. No issues arose during the journey. The 11 men were named Ah Hood, Charles LaDuc, An Gao, Dennis Crowley, Jacob Drake, Michael Donahue, Al Priest, John Black, John Thomas, Ah Shock, and William Scott. We will cover all of these men in the upcoming episode. So stay tuned and remember, do your own time, do your own number.